I'd like, as we come to God's Word, I'd like you to turn with me, take your notes or the screen or your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 2. If you're 40 years old, uh, you have lived just long enough to know that in 40 years, a lot can go right and a lot can go wrong. (laughs) It's about that much time. Well, about 40 years after the Apostle Paul started a church in the world-class city of Ephesus, about 40 years later, Christ, from heaven, sent a message a personalized message to that church in Ephesus. It was about 40 years old at this point. I wonder if Jesus sent Central Assembly a personalized message. I wonder if Jesus was to talk out loud to the church in America today. I wonder what he'd say. Well, I think it would be similar to what, what Jesus said to that Ephesian church that bears so many similarities that city to our nation today. He says in verse 2 of Revelation 2, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. So in those 40 years, a lot had gone well. Yet verse 4, I I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. You've forsaken your first love. You no longer sing, sing songs like, I'm desperate for you. You're all I need. You, you've left your first love. And then verse 5, our marching orders, consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If I could paraphrase that verse in three words, it would be the three words, refocus. You've left your first love, so, so you need to refocus on your first love again. And then repent. Remember how far you've fallen and repent. And then return. Go and do the first things that you did. Go back to what you did at first. Refocus. Repent and return. Let's just walk through those three words this morning. First of all, refocus. Refocus on what? How great a church we are? How much we have in America? Mm -mm. We need to go back to refocusing on the one who truly needs to be our first love, and that's Jesus. Let me tell you, before it's wonderful worship songs and great choirs and orchestras and praise bands, it's Jesus. Before it's inspiring sermons and favorite podcasters, it's Jesus. Before it's church programs and church buildings, that we may love, it's Jesus that we love more. And I'm going to mess with you here now before it's donuts and coffee in the lobby and lunch after church with your friends. It's Jesus. We love him more than any other of those things because he is all we need, as we powerfully sang this morning. It's Jesus. And that's why what Paul writes in Colossians 3 is so incredibly important. Verse 1 
Since then, you've been raised with Christ. Set your heart on worship songs. No. Set your heart on your favorite speakers. No. He said, set your heart on things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. My friend, Dr. Gary Tyra, in his wonderfully inspiring book, Christ's Empowering Presence, he talks about how revolutionary Colossians 3 became in his life. He writes, at the heart of many of the approaches to Christian spirituality that have been offered over the years is the idea that it's possible to learn to live moment by moment in the felt presence of the resurrected and ascended Christ. It's possible to approach all the events in the course of a day with a sense that we're not alone, that Christ is right there with us, loving us, encouraging us, enabling us to respond to this or that situation or person the way he would. The life-altering concept of Christ's empowering presence. Now, my friend Dr. Tyra was a pastor and a professor, and he said, when I began to discover first love again, when I began to discover Colossians 3, setting my life and whole attention moment by moment on Jesus. He said, it was at a time in my life when words like this described me. He said, there were words like hurry and stress and anxiety and frustration and impatience and melancholy. Those words, even though I was a pastor, even though I was trying so hard to live for Jesus, those were the words to describe me. And that's, that's how many of us, you know, we start with Jesus, but, but he no longer is our first love and we're focused on everything else. We even get focused on our busyness and, our, and that pressure to perform out of all the right intentions. Our Christian lives become just checking off the boxes and striving and probably low-level guilt all the time that we're never, that we're never matching up. It's time to refocus on Jesus. My friend, Dr. Tyrus, said, my life began to change when I just began to refocus on Jesus. As Gail Johnson has written, she said, striving and pushing and shoving will never bring life to your soul ever, but Jesus will. It's just refocusing on him. He said, I have this against you, Jesus said to this church, that you don't just focus on me all the time anymore. As Von Bearer said, in many of our churches, Jesus is still the commercial, but he's no longer the main event. And so no wonder he says, consider how far you've fallen and repent. Repent. Repentance has to do with our sin. What do we repent of? We repent of all sin in our lives. It's the game changer word. And it grates it grates in a kind of uncomfortable way against our contemporary ears. Most people you will work with this week probably do not have the word repentance even in their vocabulary. And a lot of churches are trying to distance themselves from this word because it feels offensive. And it is offensive, first of all, for two reasons. First of all, because it's, it's honest. It's an honest word. 
Repentance means you're not allowed to be a hypocrite. You can't fake it any longer. Repentance means you've got to come clean and be honest about what is really going on in your life and heart. I think honesty is one of the hardest things about being a Christian for me. It's, it's that abject honesty. I, I want to live in denial. I, I want to point the finger and blame other people. But God's Spirit always brings me back to honesty. And then out of that honesty, I find that this word is very humbling because it, it brings me to the place where I have to admit that my way was wrong and God's way was right after all. And that's humbling to admit you're wrong. It's humbling to say, God, I blew it. I, you were right all along. And yet repentance will bring you back to that place. David, after in that great psalm of repentance, Psalm 51, where he had committed adultery and then committed murder, and he's repenting in this psalm. And, and he says, my sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. I mean, when we're flaunting our credentials, when, when our self-esteem has become more important than God's esteem, I want to tell you, we block off the grace of God. But repentance brings us to honesty and to humility. We can't be hypocrites anymore. We've got to be the real deal in it all. And we, in humility, realize that in our brokenness, He meets us with His fullness. He dwells with the humble. And so, perhaps, in talking about the lead-up to that realization in his life, David writes in Psalm 32, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. We've been feeling the heat of summer this week, and it's going to get worse next week, sorry to tell you that. My irrigation system is not working right now. And where you don't have water, everything dies. So I've been praying, let it rain in more ways than one. <laughs> and we know what it is to be sapped by the heat of summer. And he said, that's what the conviction of the Holy Spirit, God calling me to that place of humility and honesty again. He said, God was working on me, and, and, and your, your hand was heavy on me, and my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Can I hear a praise God somewhere in this house? He forgave the guilt of my sin. That's why Peter could preach in Acts 3, verse 19, repent then, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. It's an honest word. It's a humbling word. It's, it's a hard word, repent. But it's the door opener to the reign of heaven and the grace of God. He's saying, you've lost your first love. You need to refocus on Jesus. And you need to repent on all the, of all the Jesus substitutes in your life. And the reign of heaven is going to come. That's why Frank Bartleman, who was so central to the Azusa Street Revival 115 years ago, which, which was where Central Assembly ultimately came from, he said the depth of revival will be determined exactly by the depth of the spirit of repentance. God, help us. Help us, Lord. Help us.
You've forsaken your first love. You need to refocus on Jesus. So consider how far you've fallen and repent. And then Jesus said to the Ephesian church, and do the things you did at first. You need to return to what you were and what you did at first. And I think for that, for us in America, Jesus would say to his church, I just want you to return to being the people of God. And I almost, I almost titled that point, Return to Being Unashamed to Be the People of God. Because our culture is making it increasingly embarrassing to be a full of Jesus, spirit-filled Christian these days. In the epistle to Diognetus, who was written maybe as early as 40 years after Jesus spoke to the Ephesian church in the early part of the uh, second century. Um, we don't know who Diognetus was except that he's referred to as your excellency. So it was a writer trying to explain to a ruler about this phenomenon of the spread of the Christian church. And uh, Diognetus writes this, for the Christians are distinguished from other men neither by country nor language nor the customs which they serve, observe but inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities according as the lot of each of them has determined and following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing, food, and the rest of their ordinary conduct, they display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. So he's saying they dress like everybody else. They follow the general customs of their country. They drive, it was today, he'd say they drive the same kind of cars as all the rest of us. But there is something strikingly different about their way of life, these Christians. And he goes on to explain, they marry as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. Here's where the battle lines are being drawn around our understanding of sexual morality and, and life and the sanctity of life, those same battle lines are being drawn today in our nation. And so they beget children, but they don't destroy their offspring, either in the womb or out of the womb. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. I'm so grateful to be a citizen of the United States. But above all else, I'm a citizen of heaven because of Jesus. And they obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. What an impact the early Christian church made on their world. And I just thought I'd have a little fun with you because there's so much in our culture to make us embarrassed about being religious these days, let alone Christians. And Mike, Mike Clark writes, I want to turn this idea of thinking again, which he'd been writing about, and aim it at an idea so rooted in the post-Christian West that I'm sure it will mess with our brains a little. It's the idea that religion is good or perhaps great for society as a whole. You know, thank God, I think Jesus is calling us just to be the church again, just to be his people again. And you know what? You don't have to hang your head in shame. In fact, in this article, he goes on and cites 247 studies done between 1944 
in the year 2010. 247 different sociological studies that showed that people of faith um, affect society in such a positive way that it diminishes crime, deviance, and delinquency. That's what faith can do. He says people of faith are for, far more likely to donate their money and time to socially beneficial programs and be active in civic affairs. I tell you, you, you can go on and on about social justice and thank God for it, but if you never give your time or money away, it, you're a hypocrite. You know, it's like saying someone else be socially just, but I'm not going to roll up my sleeves. But this is what people of faith tend to do. They are deemed happier, less neurotic, far less likely to commit suicide. And get this, they have an average life expectancy more than seven years longer than that of people who have no faith. Gives new meaning to live long and prosper. <laughs> people of faith, these, all these studies have shown tend to tend to be more apt to marry, less likely to divorce, report higher degrees of satisfaction with their spouse. Religious husbands are far less likely to abuse their wives or children, unlike what it's made out to be today. Religious fathers are much more likely to be involved in youth-related activities, such as coaching sports teams or leading scout troops. Religious students, get this, if you're a student, religious students perform, on average, better on standardized achievement tests. They're far less likely to drop out of school, to obtain uh, better jobs upon graduation, are far less likely to be on the unemployment rolls. Thank God. People of faith, listen, uh, our culture is... Uh, making you feel more and more ashamed of being people of faith, but it's good for you to be a person of faith. So let's be happy that we get to be the people of God. <laughs> then add Jesus at the center, and we can transform society. That's why I think God, when God calls us to return, He's calling us not only to return to being the people of God in all that we ought to be, but he's teaching us to return to doing good works as the church. Back to the epistle to Diognetus, he says to sum it up all in one word, what the soul is in the body, that Christians are in the world. <laughs> what the soul is to body, that's what Christians are to the world. Tertullian, he was a scholar and lived in the second into the third century, a church scholar. He was the one who first came up with the idea of Trinity to describe uh, as a title for Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He describes their church gatherings this way. We meet together as an assembly, because here's where I think our good works begin. We meet together as an assembly and congregation that offering up prayer to God as a united force, we may wrestle with him in our supplications. He says, this is partly why we gather as a church, so that we can wrestle with God in prayer for the world we live in. I'll tell you, there's a few things I love more than when we lift our voices as a congregation in prayer. Like Acts 4, they lifted their voices to the Lord and said, oh God, you have made sovereign God, you've made the heavens and the earth, and we need you. And he said, we, we, we do this And uh, we pray too. We said, first of all, this strong exertion, God delights in. He delights when we come together on behalf of the world around us. 
when we exert ourselves to struggle with God in prayer for his breakthrough in the world around us. So we pray, too, for the emperors, for their ministers, and for all in authority, for the welfare of the world, for the prevalence of peace, for the delay of the final consummation. We pray for mercy on our world. We pray for our leaders. We pray. We wrestle with God for the good of society around us. I think that's where our good works start. And then in another first century work called the Apology of Aristides, an apology doesn't mean here saying you're sorry. Apology here means an intellectual defense of the faith. And he's writing to the Roman Emperor Hadrian trying to explain the phenomenon of the early church. And this would easily be within 30 to 40 years of when Jesus spoke to the Ephesian church. He says, They abstain from all impurity in the hope of the recompense that is to come in another world. As for their servants or handmaidens or children, they persuade them to become Christians by the love they have for them. And when they become so, when they become Christians, they call them without distinction brothers. doesn't matter if they're a servant, a handmaid, a child. We're all equal. We're all brothers. They do not worship strange gods, and they walk in all humility and kindness. And falsehood is not found among them, and they love one another. When they see the stranger, they bring him into their homes and rejoice over him as over a true brother. For they do not call those who are after the flesh, but those who are in the Spirit and in God. And if there is among them a man that is poor and needy, and, and if they have not an abundance of necessities, they fast two or three days that they may supply the needy with necessary food. This is what Christians are like. If they find someone hungry and they don't have extra food, they will, they will go without food for two or three days so that they can give it to somebody else who does have a need. I want to tell you the love of God shown through us in good works to our world, so transforming. That's why Paul writes to Titus in the New Testament. In Titus chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Remind the people in the church there to be subject to rulers and authorities to be obedient, and to be ready to do whatever is good. Whatever is good, be ready to do it. And to slander no one. And to be peaceable and considerate. And always to be gentle towards everyone. It does not sound like social media some days. It grieves me to see followers of Jesus just being very nasty. Just tearing people apart. The ethic of the early Christian church, the thing we need to return to, was they were people of good works. He says, be ready. Tell Titus, tell him to be ready to do everything was good and don't slander people and be peaceable and considerate, always gentle towards everyone. And then in the next few verses, Paul will go on in Titus chapter 3 to remind him, I think of the third thing, God calls us to respond, to return to. He calls us to return to just unapologetically being the people of God. He calls us to return to doing good works to change our world. And most of all, to really change our world, he calls us to proclaiming the good news. Because he goes immediately to describing good news. He says in the next verse, verse 3, at one time, 
We too were foolish. We were disobedient. One time met before Christ, before we had a life encountering change with Christ. Not before we just volunteered at the food pantry. But he's going even deeper than good works. He said before Jesus changed our lives. We were foolish, we were disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another, as so many people do today. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit who he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior so that having been justified by his grace we might become heirs having the hope not just of this life but of eternal life. That my friends is the good news. That's what gospel means. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we need to return, not not just to being the people of God, not just to doing good works, but we, we need to return to proclaiming that news to our world, the gospel. Look, there's nothing like it in any other religious system. Let's look at verses 4 and 5 again. He saved us, not because of righteous things we've done, but because of his mercy. You can't do a, a thing to deserve The fact that God loved you and he died in your place at the cross and he wants to give you his mercy. And good deeds ought to fill your life. That's partly how we witness to our world by doing good deeds and serving the poor and the hungry and the needy in our world. But it starts starts with Jesus showing mercy to us. And in that mercy, he changed us. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. It's not just believing the right things. It's Jesus. That's why we pray, let it rain. Lord, by your Spirit, come. May your Spirit touch people's lives. May they put their faith in you. May they be born again. May may they be renewed inside out by the Holy Spirit so that having been justified by his grace, we become heirs having the hope of eternal life. There's many uh, studies are indicating that in churches like ours, um, there's a, a surprisingly large percentage of people who now believe that to share your faith with somebody else is politically incorrect. It's inappropriate to evangelize other people. That's become a very bad word. But I want to tell you, I, I want to serve. I want to volunteer. I want to do good works. I want to be the man of God I ought to be. I want to be a part of the church that is truly being the people of God and doing good works, but no life is ultimately changed without the power of Jesus making them new from the inside out. And if we love people, we're going to share the good news with them. So Revelation 2, verse 5, because they left their first love, God calls them to refocus. Refocus on Jesus And then consider how far you've fallen and repent, repent. And then do the things you did at first, being the people of God, doing good works as the church of Jesus Christ ought to, and proclaiming 
the good news. Would you stand with me?